Scrimshaw and his guest get some secrets off their chest. You should listen. It's the best. Hello and welcome to Obsessed with me, Joseph Scrimshaw. This is a very special episode of the podcast because it is our first episode as a part of Feral Audio. Feral Audio is an amazing, wonderful podcast collective, so I am extremely happy, proud, and a third thing, because that's how lists work, to be involved with Feral Audio. If you are new to the podcast, here's what Obsessed is. It is a podcast about liking things a lot. Maybe too much. This podcast is like the world's happiest, most fun playground that is perched on the edge of a cliff. At any moment, we might go from swinging on the monkey bars to falling into the abyss. In other words, it is great fun. Each episode, I invite charming, wonderful human beings on the show, and I ask them deep, probing questions, and also weird questions about things like Hitler and groin punching. For our first episode on Feral, I asked my friend, the amazing actor and fellow Feral podcast creator, James Urbaniak, to join me to discuss his obsession with actors, or actors, depending on your perspective. I personally relate to that obsession because I've done a lot of acting in my life. I've done children's theater, interactive theater, community theater. I've done Shakespeare. I once did a commercial where I co-starred with the monkey from the TV show Friends. That was extremely difficult acting because I had to pretend that I did not like monkeys. And in reality, I do. I really like monkeys. But my very first acting role was in junior high. I was cast as beggar number two in a production of Oliver Twist. And I had the honor of saying the classic line, please, sir, may I have some more? In theory, I should have just said it in a British accent. But instead, I said it as weird as possible to get attention. Because what is acting if not saying weird things to get attention? Here's how I delivered my one line. Prisha, my house I sounded like a sad baby demon goat from whatever circle of hell is reserved for terrifying narcissists. But I got a laugh, and a monster was born. So long story short, here I am alone in my home recording a podcast for you. A couple of quick plugs before the show proper begins. If you somehow don't know about James Urbaniak's podcast, please check it out. It's also on Feral, and it's called Getting On with James Urbaniak. There's an episode called The Smart Thing, where James and I pretend to have relations. So check that out. If you enjoy this podcast, and you'd like to hear me say comedy things in person, I've got a bunch of shows coming up here in Los Angeles. You can get details for all of them on my website at josephscrimshaw.com slash live dash shows. And if seeing me in person is a little bit much, I understand, you can just follow me on Twitter. My clever username is at Joseph Scrimshaw. And so, with no further ado, please sit back, relax, because I'm sure before this you were standing bolt upright incredibly tense. Now sit back, relax, and thrill to James Urbaniak's obsession with actors. Hello and welcome to Obsessed with me, Joseph Scrimshaw. I'm sitting here in my home with an awesome human being, James Urbaniak. Hello. How are you? You're pretty awesome yourself. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on this, which I believe is your feral 
audio debut yes, podcast. Yes, the inaugural Feral episode. Very exciting. Yeah, Welcome you. to the Feral family of stars. <laughs> I've been a bit uh, lax. I, I haven't done mine in like half a year. Things just happened. Yeah. Uh, life is what happens when you're busy not doing a podcast, as John <laughs> Lennon so memorably put it. Oh, how many podcasts do you think John Lennon would have done? A lot. I think he would have been podcast guest king. There are, there are, I remember in the 70s, he would be on WNEW-FM, which was at that time a kind of progressive FM radio station oh, okay. in New York when that format was briefly commercially viable. Yeah. And there was a famous <laughs> DJ named Scott Muni who used to have Lennon on and, yeah, he would, and Lennon would just kind of go off and be funny and... Yeah. Would he say shocking things a lot or... No, I remember him being extremely affable. Okay. And he'd be, he'd be like, we'll be right back after this commercial, and I hope it's for a Whopper. <laughs> Burger King references. At any point in this podcast that you just <laughs> randomly want to answer as John Lennon. Ah, uh, yes. I will find that. Imagine. There's no podcasts. <laughs> oh, that is unimaginable at this point. <laughs> but I'm going to start mine up soon. I just recorded a new one. I, I'm using your podcast to promote my own. Oh, good. That's the kind of... Yeah, cross promotion. Yeah, I'm happy to be part of the Feral Family Feral yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of Stars. I like Feral Family of Stars. Uh-huh. Very old world. Uh, so your obsession is actors. Yes. When you asked me to do this, I thought, well, that's my main obsession is actors and acting and acting styles and everything. Yeah. And I really, any like I've talked about this in other podcasts. I've talked about my love of old character actors and things, but I really am. Fascinated, obsessed with them. So that that really is number one. So did your obsession with them come before discovering that you wanted to be an actor or after or during? or? I think I really got into actors. Uh, seriously, I, got, I became fascinated with them like when I started college, I went to a community college in New Jersey. And at the time I enjoyed acting and I was pretty good at it as an amateur I did a lot of college plays and things, mm-hmm. but when I was like 18, 19, I didn't know that I wanted to be an actor. I was leaning more towards the visual arts. Oh, cool. I uh, am a lifelong marginal cartoonist in every sense of the word, <laughs> uh, and I, at the time, I, I was taking graphic arts classes, and I was thinking of being some sort of graphic artist or cartoonist or something, mm-hmm. commercial artist yeah. kind of thing. But when I was 18, I met an awesome guy at, who also went to this school named Anthony, and he was a fascinating guy. Uh, he was obsessed with the 1930s and 40s, sort of early 20th century uh, movies, culture, architecture, and he was an eccentric... This is like 1981. Okay. I graduated high school in 81. I started this college in the fall of 81, and I met this kid. We became very good friends, and he used to wear like retro eyewear, little <laughs> round glasses, like antique glasses. Wow. He would wear... Um, in the early 80s, the default look for young men was still 70s, like long hair, jeans, you know. Right, yeah. It doesn't just change immediately with the calendar. Just, you kind of, you know, that was kind of the, like, was basically sort of before hip-hop became sort of crossed over. Right. So short hair wasn't a thing. So he looked extra freakish. He looked extra, like he was a nerd, but he was very special and strange looking. Like a nerd that was stylish and no one yes, because he had <laughs> what to do with style. that. He had his own, and he would wear like wingtip shoes and slacks. He never wore jeans. 
Uh, he was like fucking Paul F. Tompkins <laughs> before he was a thing. Was he Paul F. Tompkins? Yes. No. In a different life? And, and most extraordinarily of all, he wore sock garters. Joseph, I don't know if you know this existed. Uh, only from cartoons. So, yes. This is basically in olden times, like the <laughs> 20s, when I guess elastic technology uh, wasn't sophisticated yeah. <laughs> yet, uh, men's socks would fall down. It was a big problem. <laughs> men's socks were constantly uh, slipping down. That's what so, actually started World War One, right? Yes, the sock yes, problem. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and so they, you would wear a little garter. Much like a lady would wear garters for her stockings, but you wear them on your lower leg, and they hold up your socks. And they're not meant... F I mean, they may have had an erotic frisson. I don't know <laughs> if that's your thing. But he... Now, I point out, this is before... This is 1981. Yeah. There's no internet. There's no eBay. Right. So he had to search these well, out. How he got... I, yeah, I don't know. He must have known what... Secondhand stores to yeah, go to. Yeah, I picture him going into a little shop like in Gremlins and getting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a weird little shop. Exotic thing. So anyway, so that's that guy. And meanwhile, he, um, his dad worked for RCA, and they had gotten a VHS uh, player early Ooh, on. Yeah, VCR, really early. A VCR, because it wasn't even that mainstream in '81. No, people had VCRs. So when I met him, he he not only had a VCR, but he had an array of. Tapes and what was available on VHS when VCRs first came out? Old movies. Right. Because it wasn't a mainstream thing yet that you were feature film. Right. So the new studios weren't putting it out. They're yeah. just like, we'll try it on these old films. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like it, so all, the bulk of the movies he had were old movies uh, that VHS companies could put out for very little money. And a lot of them were great movies. And we used to hang out and we'd watch old movies at this guy's house. And he had an encyclopedic knowledge of old character actors. So we'd sit there watching something, like My Man Godfrey, for instance, and he'd go, that's Franklin Pangborn. And I'd be like, that's a cool name. And that guy's funny. Okay, that's Franklin Pangborn. And my initial awareness of that whole period and those actors came from this one guy, just from hanging out at Anthony's house in New Jersey. And we would, he'd love these old films, and I enjoyed watching them. And, did and, you, and that's what we would do. So did you eventually say, like, I want to be like Franklin Pangborn? Well, I eventually time went by, and by the time I, really, it, it took a while. I, I was like in my early, it wasn't until I was maybe 21 or even 22 that I thought, I think maybe I actually want to do this. Yeah. Because I, I, I stopped going to that college, I got a day job, and I became a kind of quintessential slacker. Sort of a young person who was out of school, but yeah. not really in a career. <laughs> not into life But yet. kind of arty-farty. <laughs> yeah. And I was basically just hanging out, going to bars, seeing my friends in New Jersey, and not really... And just I had a, a series of day jobs. and uh, But then I started thinking about acting. And then the, the big event for me was in the uh, mid-'80s, or I think uh, around '86. I uh, I met a woman named Karen Coonrod, and long story short, she was living in that area. She had been a teacher in that area, but she'd actually started directing. She taught at a private boys' school. She taught English. Okay. She was 10 years older than me, so she was like in her early 30s when we met. I was in my 20s. And she started, they needed someone to direct plays at the high school. She started directing plays, and then she decided, wow, I really like directing plays. And she was doing interesting stuff with the kids and she thought, 
I don't want to be a teacher anymore. I want to be a theater director. Awesome. And she applied to Columbia University in New York, which had a very good directing program. Part of her application was a video of one of the high school plays she directed. And she got in. And I met her after she'd gotten in. And she was she was uh, starting to get, make money as a director by directing, by working for like local parks. They hired her to like direct like community theater. And I was still an amateur then. Okay. I hadn't moved to New York yet. So we met and she was a very focused, sophisticated person who wanted to be a theater director, but was at the beginning of her career. And I was sort of young, uh, un, you know, not very experienced actor, but we just met at the right time. And she said, well, here's what I want to do. I want to, after we do these summer plays, I want to form a theater company and we're going to I want to do stuff in New York. And I said, yeah, let's do it. Cool. And that's how I started seriously acting. Uh, and we, within a year or so, we moved. We both moved into New York, and I started working with her. We founded this theater company, and that became my life for like six years. That took me into like the early 90s. What was the theater company called? Uh, it was called Arden Party, A-R-D-E-N. Okay. Arden came from the Forest of Arden in Shakespeare's As You Like It, because when I met Karen, we first worked on a community theater production of As You Like It. Okay. Well, that's a great start to theater, because I was expecting the theater name to be something weird and pompous or... Well, we, we had a lot of discussion. At that time, there were a lot of, were like, Arden Project. We're like, not Project. <laughs> she liked Arden. It was her idea. It was like, it was like Arden's nice. It's just kind of a yeah. nice word. The it's Phoenix like, Agenda. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then she, I think she also was like, I've got it. Party, because it's a group of people and it's a celebration. Yeah, that's awesome. And I thought, that's nice. And so we were Arden Party. And people who were in New York at that time remember us. Like it, we ended up very slowly over the course of several years carving out a reputation, and uh, that was like my real training as an actor. Like uh, the great thing about having a small independent theater company is that you can cast yourselves against type, which we right. often did. And Karen really pushed me to get out, out of my comfort zone. Uh, then and now, I enjoyed playing sort of funny characters, character parts, even when yeah. I was a young man. And she would push me to be like the leading man in a play, say. And she'd say, the, the more traditionally leading man, she'd say, you should be the funny guy. And it was an opportunity that a lot of young actors don't get. Yeah. Where you get to, we could be whoever we wanted. And it was a wonderful experience. So, And that's when I started getting really interested in the technical aspects of acting and reading lots of books. And I never had any formal training, but I, uh, prior to that, I'd actually taken a handful of classes in New York, acting classes. Uh, but that's when I really started thinking a lot about it. And then I was getting more into studying old actors and, yeah. uh, all the stuff I'd learned from my friend Anthony. And th that's when it started becoming a real obsession when I was actually now doing it. Yeah. I was acting in New York, albeit with a small theater company, but still I was working with, we were meeting actors in New York and I thought I was a pretty good actor. I remember like one of the first things we did, <laughs> she knew some actors from New York because she was going to school there. I had moved to New York yet. Uh, and I came in there thinking, I'm certainly the best actor in Monmouth County, New Jersey. <laughs> and then I'm seeing these young guys Mama's my age County? who had training, who had gone to college for this, you know, and they were fucking great. And yeah. I was like, okay, I got some more learning and catching up to do here. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I am very obsessed with like technique and how you do it. Awesome. Uh, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about that. You have mentioned in the past uh, being interested in acting styles. Very much. Over the over the ages. Yes. And 
is it just a chronological thing to you, or do you think there are different acting styles, like on broadcast television today? I think there are styles that parallel styles from the past, even though they're ostensibly different. Okay. Like, one thing that interests me a lot is how technology can affect art. Right. Uh, it's related to acting. It's performing. But there's a fascinating thing I read years ago. There's a great... I'm a showbiz junkie, and I'm also interested in all facets of show business. So I read biographies of musicians and artists and even people I don't really care about their art. I'm just interested in how they did it. Right. So, but I like, so I'm Bing Crosby. I really respect him. I don't listen to Bing Crosby records at home. Yeah, but I'm, his life is fascinating. Like, I'm more into Sinatra, say, than Crosby in terms of like mid 20th century crooners. But Crosby. Who I grew up in the 70s, he was like a grumpy old man on TV. He was famously sort of Republican and famously like a horrible father. Yeah. I'm, it was I'm, not a secret that he was yeah, a horrible father. he was just a kind of unpleasant guy. But artistically, he's a really interesting guy. And the thing I read that was so interesting was uh, when he started... So he's, he's, what, born in like the early 20th century. Yeah. Uh, and so... He became famous in the first became famous in the 1930s, like sort of the mid to late 30s. And prior to him, the biggest popular singer was someone like um, Al Jolson or Rudy Valley. Right. And as we know, their style of singing. I'm moving the mic away. Right, because it's to get to the back of the house. Exactly. You have to get to the back of the house, and so they're singing pop songs, but there's no miking. Yeah, they're basically the screaming, I love you. They're basically, <laughs> they're projecting on stage yeah. because that's what they had to do. Now, microphone technology comes in in like the 30s and it starts getting, it starts to be used in theaters. So Crosby realizes, wait a minute, I don't have to, no, there's mama. <laughs> you know, they, that's why they sing in that kind of tenor voice because it's you can really hear that. Yeah, Crosby is like, no, wait a minute. I can get up close to the microphone <laughs> and use a baritone. Yeah. Um, and he he sort of was one of the first guys to underplay pop music. Now, um, a decade or two later, Sinatra came along and pushed that even further. Yeah. Where Sinatra's like the Brando of pop, where he really acts it. But Crosby was one of the first guys to go, wait a minute, I can I can exploit this technology He's still a great technical singer, but he's like, I don't have to do that projection singing. And so he's one of the first guys to do this kind of underplayed thing. It's fascinating to me. Yeah. And that was because of the technology. So we have a parallel today, which is that uh, Mike, in the last couple decades, probably since the, I think it's really started in the 70s, uh, and now it's so commonplace, is body mics. Right. Actors have realized that they can exploit this technology to the point where... They talk so quietly that they talk much quieter than people do in real life. And we'd be, if this was an acting, if this was a scene, it's very possible that uh, two actors would be talking to each other like this. <laughs> and you had actually, I've had the experience where I've had to lean in because I couldn't hear what the other actor was saying. Now, we're both sitting here in a room. We're using microphones. Yeah. But we would actually, we're just using our natural voices. Yes. And our natural voices, I'm a loud motherfucker. <laughs> We're both, we both have had, theatrical backgrounds. Yes, so. <laughs> uh, every woman I've ever been with uh, for a period of time has always hushed me in restaurants. You know? <laughs> That's just the thing that I've gone through my whole life. Uh, so you, you're the yeah, Al Jolson of loud. restaurants. You're being loud. Yeah. Excellent. 
Uh, so, uh, so, but that is a cliche now. That's because it's become a cliche that actors talk super quiet because they can. Because it's intense, right? Uh, yeah, Andy Garcia and Jennifer Aid is a kind of modern apotheosis of this. Uh, okay. The whole performance is him just being really, really quiet and doing this kind of intense thing where yeah. he's like talking much quieter than people do in real life. And my feeling is this is a mirror of the 19th century actor who went on stage and went, Oh, from you to fire, Yeah. You have betrayed me. Right, the cliche of the bad old-timey actor. Right. He shouts, he makes big gestures. Yeah, he has vibrato on consonants even. And the reason is, he's, those actors saw other actors who were good, but they also had to be heard. Right. So they're leading with being heard. They're leading with that as opposed to just acting. And oh, by the way, we also have to be heard. So great actors in the 19th century, I believe, were probably trying to do the same things we do today. They were trying to be honest and truthful and uh, emotionally resonant. And the bad ones were like, oh, I get it. You just get on stage and shout. Okay. So today you have actors who see, you know, the, look at film actors and who are mic'd and who can talk quietly. And they go, oh, I get it. You kind of mumble. The cliche of Brando. Right. He was a great actor, but people saw Brando and were like, oh, I get it. You just, you just got to talk quietly. <laughs> and now that's gotten even more extreme because we have body mics, which Brando didn't have. So now they can talk super quietly. And that, to me, is the exact same thing as the 19th century actor, where in 100 years, people will watch Jennifer Eight and they're going, why is he talking so quiet? <laughs> like, what is the same way we'll see a silent film actor making a giant gesture. Yeah. I really believe that in the future, people look at a lot of modern acting and go, it's so weird. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah because they, that one choice affects so much because yeah. they, I hadn't thought of it that way, but the sort of stereotype of the big hard man who is always leaning a little toward the camera with an yes. eyebrow up is like, that's physically what's going to happen to your body if you're going to be super quiet right. and mean what you're saying and not be weak. <laughs> Your body just wants to do that the same way as if you're going to go, I would like a coffee. Yeah, you can't, yeah. It's hard to talk like that without raising your hand. Right, exactly. Uh, so I have a line of dialogue, uh, and I'm wondering if yes. you would be willing to perform it in various acting styles. I'd love to, yes. Uh, the line I picked out <laughs> is my favorite line from uh, the movie Seven. Yes. Which is, just because the fucker's got a library card doesn't make him Yoda. Nice. I've seen that film. I don't remember the context of that line, but... It is the Brad Pitt uh, just random bitching that becomes the epiphany that helps them find the killer. Right. Okay, so what style would you like me to do this in? Well, well let's, uh, let's start out with like uh, old-timey bad stage actor hitting 19, the back of the house. 18, a guy from 1875. Yeah. An actor manager on tour <laughs> with, I don't know, some old play. Yeah. King Lear. Yeah, King Lear. All right, this is going to be loud. No, That's fine. Yeah, go ahead and move the mic away. I'm going to do, we'll do the build thing here, the build. Just because the fucker's got a library card doesn't make him Yoda! Thank you. I'm sorry, about sorry, neighbors. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so, do you, are there any other styles between that and the current one we discussed that well, you'd like to do? Well, we can do... Uh, Modern, well, modern scratch and mumble. This relates to Woody Allen. I, I, I'm in Sweet and Lowdown, Woody Allen's movie, although I don't really say anything in it. 
I'm, I'm playing a member of Sean Penn's band. Oh, cool. But as you know, like, he's kind of well known. He, he say to actors, put it in your own words. Okay. And so then they'll be like, oh, great. How can I do that? But he writes funny. He writes good dialogue, so you don't really have to change the words. Yeah. So that's why everyone sounds like Woody Allen when they're in a Woody Allen movie, because they go, oh, just because... Um, I don't know. The fucker's got a library card. Doesn't you know? Make him like Yoda. You know. That's, okay. So that's, that's because that's, they're trying to make it sound natural. Yeah, and, and that's by making another. It sound natural, they sound like Woody Allen. Yeah, that's another. But you see that other places where people will kind of put in ums and uhs. Sometimes you're just trying to remember your lines, and it seems like you're thinking. <laughs> do you do that? Do you? I've been known to buy time. Sometimes I've something's going. I'm not acting, but some, I'm doing something, and the camera captures it, and it looks like I'm acting, and, and it works well. <laughs> I don't tell anyone. <laughs> awesome. Every actor has had that experience. Yeah, it's a wonderful experience. Um, <laughs> can you do the, the modern intense, as though you're in a very oh, serious Oh, yeah, sure. Drama? Let's see. Well, a lot of modern guys, they like, they like to talk like this, which I think is like Snake Plissken. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, on steroids, yeah. Uh, he kind of invented that, the... Uh, uh, what's his face? Kurt Russell? Yeah, yeah, Kurt Russell. He kind of, he's almost doing like a parody of it in Escape from New York. Yeah. Because the whole thing is tempered like that. But that's really become very standard, you know. Yeah. Batman, certainly. You I mean, can't Batman play Batman is, without talking like that. Yeah, anymore. and that's ridiculous. It's, I mean, it's got to the point of ridiculous. And a lot of guys, they like to get down there. and That's a very modern, like a little gravel in the back of the, it's sort of centered in the chest. Oh, yeah. Just because the fucker's got a library card doesn't make him Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was very accurate. The other thing I like about that is there's that I style. Talk like that for the rest of the uh, <laughs> podcast, by the way. Go for it. Uh, it seems like that line delivery uh, saves all of the emotion for the last word, too. <laughs> so it leaves you hanging of, what do they care? What do they think about it? Like, I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to get some coffee. That's and nice. always the pop on the last word. That's a, that's a variation on an old uh, comedy voice that Paul Lind used to do. Uh, this was also done by the character actress Alice Ghostly. <laughs> those of you who know who that is, you know who that is. And if you don't, you can Google her. I will Google Ghostly. Uh, but they're contemporaries. They pretty much became well-known in the 50s. They acted throughout the 60s and 70s. And uh, young people, I'm at an age now where I say things like young people, but young people <laughs> might not remember Paul Lynn, but he was a very ubiquitous comic actor in the 70s, most famous for being the center square for years on Hollywood Squares. Yes. And he was uh, of a, uh, a prior generation of uh, gay men whose comedy persona was a queenie gay guy, but their sexuality was never addressed. Right. When they were talk show guests or when they played characters. They, Paul Lynn had a sitcom in the 70s where he played a married suburban father. And he talked like this. <laughs> right. It was a type. You, you like, they the, used to be like, a, you used to be a drunk type. Or you yes, used to be. And it was just, they just talked funny. They were kind of prissy. It was like a prissy thing. Yeah. Like my mother, who uh, is wonderful, but is has is somewhat a provincial Catholic lady, okay. and also the culture just didn't talk about gay people back then. Yeah, and, and to people like my mom, and she watched TV. I would bet you my mom never suspected that Paulin was gay. It was he was just funny. Yeah, because he talked like this. <laughs> uh, but Paulin would do a thing. Here, I'll do the line as Paulin. Well, <laughs> just because the fucker's got a library card doesn't make him Yoda. <laughs> so we're break. Breaks on the Yoda like the cool guy. And Alice yeah. Ghostly does the same thing. Where she 
She's a woman, so she talks like this. They have higher voices, Joseph. Right. <laughs> and it's just I'm learning say, so yeah, much. Just because the fucker's got a library card doesn't make him Yoda. <laughs> and I'm like, did they both? They both did this thing, which is also it's a dialect, uh, which is a which I call '50s nervous voice. Yeah, it's a sort of you'll see it in cartoons too, from like that era, like a caveman. Oh well, I have to go to work today. He's got his club, <laughs> and there's just this kind of. It's sort of over-articulated, but yeah. a little nasal and a little neurotic. Yeah, it's not highbrow or lowbrow because it's there's some anger in there, there's some properness, yeah. but there's also some weakness. So it, Yeah, and so Paulin does it like this. Alice Ghostly does it more like this. But it's a thing, the 50s nervous voice. Yeah. And the thing is... You put equal stress in every syllable, and then at the end, you break it a little. <laughs> yeah, it's just that great comic rhythm, too. Like, I used to do children's theater, and to keep yeah. myself entertained, I would see if I could deliver jokes that I knew that the children could not understand, and if I could yes. get the children to laugh just on delivery. Right, sure. And they would laugh at that, just because Yoda was suddenly being said differently, so rhythmically they knew that's a time that it's okay to laugh. Well, as you know, a comedian is someone who says funny things, and a podcaster is someone who says things funny. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I'm going I'm to ask you to do it one more time now that you've gone down the oh, road please. of just pure the impressions. Hole. It's not a road, it's a rabbit hole. A rabbit hole. Uh, so, speaking of playing with the last word of a sentence, uh, Jerry Lewis had oh the delivery God. of turning everything into a question. Well, he would he would pepper his uh, uh, characters with uh, sort of Yiddishisms, yeah. and Jewish, uh, uh, sort of New York Jewish inflections. Yeah, so he would. I, I don't do a very good Lewis, actually, though I'm I'm quite obsessed with him as well. <laughs> but cool. he would do the you know. So maybe we're waiting. You yes. know that kind of. Yeah, thing. yeah, and he had that great bit with Dean Martin, where Dean Martin would yell at him and say, "It's not a question. You can let that last word drop." Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, also, I love Dean Martin has a great uh, cool voice. Yes. And in uh, his latest years, played the drunk type super, super well. He played the drunk type, but he actually has a, his speaking style owes a great debt to Bing Crosby, because Bing Crosby also had this. This is how cool guys talked in the early 20th century. They kind of, it's, it's kind of, uh, you kind of, it's kind of low, but it's really casual and yeah. has a little musicality to it. Yeah, no, I don't really care about anything. I don't really care about anything. Which yeah, is, it's just like pretty cool. true of both yeah. Bing and Bing Crosby and Dean Martin both have that voice, whatever that is. Yeah, yeah, and Dean's from this weird pocket of Ohio that is the South somehow. Right, so he has a little bit of a drawl. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. If that's, uh, yeah, that's right. He's kind of, well, I say, well, stop answering me with a question. Could you do this line as Dean Martin and then uh, do it as Jerry Lewis? Uh, well, uh, I don't act silly. Just because the fuck has got a library card doesn't make him yoke. I, know that, I don't know what that was. That was the best I could do. Yeah, that was that was almost like the owl from the old uh, Tootsie Pop commercials. Oh, I, the way I get into Jerry is to there's a there's a bit he used to do where he he'd be flummoxed, confused, and he would just talk in phrases. So someone would call him, you know, he'd be fucking up, something would be falling down, he'd be yeah. picking up cups. And he, yeah. Oh, but I didn't know because if I knew that you were here with that, but I didn't. No, because the waiter, and then to Al Payne, the tape, and the toaster. But if I knew that it was fine, because just because the fucker's got a library card doesn't make him Yoda. I'm off. My Jerry's off today. No, it's very good. It was a very good Jerry. <laughs> You're isolating, I think, the part that became Professor Frank, for sure. Well, it, and his actually public persona is uh, is very different. It's a kind of cocky voice. Yeah. 
where he's always kind of explaining something to you. You know, he's kind of... Yeah, I think he he masked that uh, the, his desire to actually be a cool guy like Dean Martin by pretending to parody that sort of Dean Martin voice. Well, in his greatest film, The Naughty Professor. Is, yeah. But the thing is, a lot of people say, oh, well, he's doing Dean Martin. He's sending up Dean Martin. When, in fact, uh, Buddy Love's persona is nothing like Dean Martin's persona. Dean Martin's persona was not combative. It's more yeah. Sinatra-esque. Yeah. Actually, he's sending up his own non-performing persona. That's Jerry's talk show persona. That's Jerry's real-life persona. Yeah. Jerry was very Rat Pack. Yeah, it was his demons. Yeah, <laughs> so he's just he's just doing himself. Yeah. That's his greatest performance, too. That That's an amazing... That's a great film. And yeah. If, if in, anyone hasn't seen yeah, that, both that's of those a comedy roles. classic, folks. Absolutely. But in both of those <laughs> roles are not his normal... Screaming, yeah. screaming yeah, kid uh, shit. The, the uh, nutty professor. <laughs> Julius Kelp is the nerd voice that he does. That's, uh, I do that pretty well. <laughs> well, just because the fucker's got a library card uh, doesn't make him Yoda. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I've got some questions for you Please. about uh, acting stuff and acting styles. Yes. Uh, if you could sit down at a bar and have a drink with any actor, who Ooh. would it be and what would you talk about? Mother of... Living or dead, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Anybody you want. Oh, there's so It could be yourself many. if you wanted. <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> you could tell yourself to quiet I down. I want What makes this James Urbaniak <laughs> I'm going to find out. Uh, well, I've said this before on podcast that my favorite actor is the great Charles Lawton. Oh, yeah. Uh, 1899 to 1962. And, uh, and so I would love to have a drink with him. And what That's, would you ask him about? Would you ask him about his acting technique? It, uh, wait, this is a whole thing like, would he, would I have to explain why we're having a drink? No. He just, he just showed up and yeah, someone just, prepped him before. Just metaphysical bliss. There yes. was prep and heaven. <laughs> yes. Right. And then he was like, you're going to meet this guy. We yeah. We travel You Earth get to now. go back to Earth, have a drink. He admires he, you. He's got a few questions for you. Yeah. He, he uh, might ask you to sign something. I think I just want him to talk about sort of how it all came about. He didn't become, he didn't turn pro to, it was like 24. He, he, his family ran a hotel business and he was a hotelier in England. And then he started doing amateur theater. It's kind of, I relate to him. He was, a, he was, he kind of was a late bloomer okay. like I was. And then he went to acting school and he was really good. And he was like, you know, uh, when Phil Hoffman died, I wrote a little tribute to him, uh, that was on slate. And, uh, I mentioned that he was sort of like our Charles Lawton. And they're actually very similar in style. Okay. Uh, very similar. How would you define that style? body types. Well, it's really interesting because the thing I find so interesting about Charles Lawton uh, is that uh, he's... So he's born in like 1899. He's basically as old as any given year of the 20th century. So he's in his 20s and the 20s. So when he's in his 20s, his late 20s, he becomes a professional actor. He goes to acting school and he starts getting parts. He's really good. And he starts getting parts on the West End. Also, there was a tradition, uh, which doesn't happen as much anymore, where young actors who were character actors would often play older parts. Right. So when Lawton was in like his 20s, he was playing like the married father of like a big family and stuff, you know? Like he would, he played uh, like 50 year old guys on stage. I like oldie times, yeah. Yeah, it's the thing that they used to do. Uh, I would love to play an old man in something. <laughs> and uh, so he, um, 
Where, where, where was so I? What, what, what would you oh, you no, the thing that's style. interesting about him, right? So here we go. So he comes from like a theater tradition, which in the early 20th century is a little arm wavy. And, right. You know, mean and loud. Yeah. Uh, but then he starts doing film and he, you can see him, his first couple films, he's still being kind of stagey. And then as he gets into it, he starts realizing, oh, you can really underplay. And actually, a, there's a wonderful uh, biography of him by Simon Callow, who's a great writer and also an actor. So he really gets right. what Lawton's doing. And in that book, he talks about how Lawton was very influenced by Gary Cooper, of all people, the very American stoic leading man of few words. Yeah. Nope. You know, that's how people <laughs> used to do Gary Cooper. You just say, yep, <laughs> nope, you know. And Lawton, an erudite Englishman yeah. of the theater who talks like this, and he's influenced by the nope guy. Because right. you saw that this guy's on to something. So he has the epiphany of less is more. Less is more. And the thing is, both those techniques uh, <laughs> wrestle with each other in all of Lawton's performances. So it's partially old theatricality, and it's also a, a amazingly ahead of the curve modern naturalism. Oh, cool. Which he's doing in like the 30s when we think about like naturalistic filmmaking starting sort of with Brando in his generation in the 50s. Right, and everything else is very stilted and purposeful. He's Elliot Kazan. It's all about like, oh no, it's all about making it real and making it real. It was resisting that old kind of presentational style. Yeah. Uh, and this, all, there are exceptions to all of these generalities. But generally, yes, there was a more presentational style. We think of 1930s acting when we imitate it. We go, hello, Jim. Thanks for coming over. <laughs> Say, you look good, right? I'm typing on a typewriter. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a kind of cliche idea that we have that period. Yeah. And so Lawton's doing this thing where he really, he just seems like to be living in the moment. He's, he has this real sort of emotion that bubbles up to the surface. And it's super compelling and really interesting. So it's this sort of thing where he, he sort of walks to styles and it works. Cool. And that's and he's he's really great. But similar to Phil Hoffman, he sort of he was a theater actor and he had a very he could be really big. He had this wonderful booming voice, but he could also be very emotional. I mean, I think the first role where people really noticed him or were like, "Holy shit!" was the was the crew member in Boogie Nights. Where yeah. There's that heartbreaking scene where he confesses his attraction to Dirk Diggler, and then he has a self-loathing moment in the car. I'm so stupid! Yeah. And it's really raw. And, like, that character's funny, but then that moment is so intense and raw. And I think people really, like, that set the template. They're like, right. this guy's really good, but I also really relate to his pain. And Lawton does that. He, like, he shows you his pain, man. <laughs> he does. <laughs> awesome. In, in a way that is more open and naturalistic than a lot of acting of that period. Cool. Um, Thank you. <laughs> a round of applause. Yes. So I would like to talk to oh, Charles Lawton. And ask him about all of that. Yeah. But I'd also like to talk to Alec Guinness. And I'd like to talk to one of Shakespeare's actors. Because like, that's... Oh, yeah. So that would be amazing. Like, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> yeah. And just also, there were no actresses the back then, which I don't know why you would get into the theater if you're a, a straight man yeah, back then. Yeah. I don't know why. That was one of my <laughs> main motivations. Sarah, every, every... That's very common. <laughs> that the social aspect yeah. is extremely pleasant. And it's like... Women couldn't go, they couldn't go to the bars afterward. What was the fucking point? <laughs> it is amazing That's, that theater yeah. survived. I can't believe it survived. It must have just been yeah. for the love of theater. <laughs> women were not allowed for so long. <laughs> That's true commitment yeah. to acting. 
Yeah, I, I mean, that I think about myself. Like, acting if you couldn't hang out with girls. Yeah, and a lot of dudes in the 90s would be like, Here, here's what theater is. It's dirty and it's smelly. You're going to dress up as a woman and no women will be around. That's right. Would have been a hard sell. I mean, the only way I ever got anyone to go out with me was have them see me on stage because that's when I knew what I was doing and I was at my best and most yeah. attractive. It's like, God, <laughs> don't see me in real life, please. <laughs> no, I understand. I think a lot of performers are that way. Yeah. I feel like I want people to see me perform. Because then they understand a little bit of exactly. who I am yes. when I'm on stage. Uh, <laughs> is there any TV show or movie where you would like to be able to go in and alter a performance? Ooh. Wow. Now, this is, this is a, a, a rather fraught question. Yeah. Because I don't just want to say, well, I would. Charlton Heston totally screws up Planet of the Apes. James Urbaniak should do that part. <laughs> Old Dr. Venture on the beach. <laughs> you did it! God damn it! <laughs> I you think did it! A lot of people would be happy to see that. Let me think about this for a okay. moment. Okay. There are performances that I've... I just feel like you're such a student of it. I feel like you must see shows where like everybody else is in tune and one person is out of tune with yeah. their acting style. Or if that kind of stuff distracts you. Yes, although I'm loath to name names because I, I want to be... Right. Positive here. And that's understandable. I actually just... Uh, so Sarah, my girlfriend and I, who's been on this show... Yeah, yeah. Uh, Craft beer Sarah. We just watched a movie, and it's... Actually, this actor's alive, and I actually don't want to say anything negative, but it's a movie totally from the fine. 70s. But let's put it this way. there's a. It's a movie from the 70s, and it's actually really well done. There's a lot of interesting stuff in it. And there's one character. It's based on a play. And there's one character in one scene. <laughs> I was going to guess it was Star Wars. Where there's, no, but you're close. Uh, where there's a comic relief character, and it's a really big comic relief character. And this actor comes out, and he just, it's not funny. It's not funny. It's a scene that's supposed to be really funny. And it's sort of when things are getting heavy and it's supposed to be a comic relief scene. And then back to the drama. And it was just the other day. And I was starting to think. Uh, this was done in the early 70s. And okay. I was thinking, wow, maybe the 70s is a bad time for comedy. Like, there's so many people in comedy now. Every movie is a comedy. Yeah. There are all these comedy stars. And I was really like, who are the comedy stars who are young? Because the guy was young in the early 70s. And I was thinking, it's kind of a weird Period where yeah. I think comedy stars were older people. Older, and then kind of. Burnett. Mel Brooks was certainly a huge comedy star, but in the early 70s, he was like my age, right. like in his early 50s. So, like, who were the kind of. Right, and it wasn't until whatever, later Seth 70s. Rogan's. Yeah, where like stand up comedians broke into film. Yeah, but stand up hadn't become th the thing the it thing. was in the 70s yet. Yeah. So it just made me think of, this is sort of a sidebar here. Yeah. But it made me think, like, maybe there weren't that many good. And it's a weird time because, like, interesting stuff was happening with Second City, but that hadn't become it hadn't a factory to film, make TV yeah. actors yet. And yeah. SNL was still a couple years away. This yeah. film is from, like, 73. Oh, that's fascinating. Anyway, the point is, this just happened the other day. I played the game of who would be better in this role. All right, here's one I'll tell you about. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to name names. Fuck it. <laughs> and I'm going to name a more famous actor, but I love the Hudsucker proxy. Mm -hmm. But I think Tim Robbins is miscast in that. Because of the sort of comedy of it not quite well, landing? Well, actually because of the drama not landing. Okay. Because, uh, as you know, it's a stylized movie, and Jennifer Jason Leigh gives this wonderful performance, yeah. which some people don't like, but I love. I She's love also it. one of my... I would yeah. have drinks with her. <laughs> I can tell you, buddy. But uh, uh, 
she does a wonderful pastiche of a kind of Rosalind Russell, right? Kind of what know, we were talking about earlier. Catherine Hepburn stereotype of the thing, but she 40. also uh, because she's so good and she can't help doing this, she uh, imbues that character with emotional depth, and you actually care about the character as a person, right? And the thing is. Uh, that character of the guy in that is supposed to be in the tradition of Jimmy Stewart and Gary Cooper. Right. Uh, this In the 30s, the young, naive guy who means well, but isn't sophisticated, and then is hurt, and then is emotionally hurt, and there's a girl, and you need basically all those colors. And uh, Tim Robbins, who I've enjoyed in many things, just in that... He doesn't bring the color of the sort of emotional life of that guy. Okay, cool. It's always it's always sort of played as a parody of a kind of dumb guy, uh, a naive guy. Yeah. But I feel like he's always sort of commenting on it, which is hard to do. It's like it's not a character I could play at all because I'm not – I appear to be intelligent. I'm really <laughs> – I'm a junior college dropout. I'm just a goofball Jersey Shore rat. I speak a certain way and I wear glasses and people cast me as these educated people, which is not something I am. But I'm not good at playing sort of slow people. It's just a thing that I don't read that way. People don't believe that I'm like a hillbilly. You know what I mean? (laughs) Or like, you know what I mean? I'm not saying I'm the most sophisticated guy in the world, but I just, I have certain default characteristics. Right, so you'd have to work really hard. cast me as a sort of naive uh, hayseed. Right. Just because, even though I was for many years, you know, but you wouldn't cast me that way because I just have certain qualities. So, um, he, so I'm saying it's a hard part to play because anyone who plays a part like that has got to be a sophisticated actor playing a kind of uh, naive, right. uh, Overly optimistic person. Yeah. yeah. And so he just doesn't. He doesn't play that quality. He kind of says, look at this goofball through the whole performance. Right, he's kind of pointing at it. And at the end, when it should get really emotional, I never feel any connection with his character as a real person. And I love that film so much that I still enjoy the movie, but that's a one where I feel like, wow, who would really be good? Like whenever that came out, like in the early 90s, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Uh, like who was a young leading man of that time who'd be really good? Alec Baldwin? He would point. I don't know if I would cast Alec Baldwin. It's interesting, yeah. though. Uh, certainly, uh, Tom Hanks circa 1983 would yeah. have been perfect. Perfect. Because uh, he he always had depth to his acting, but was also a world-class comic actor. Yeah. That's another thing that I'm fascinated by, which is not a thing I ever play, which is like uh, sort of leading men, or like romantic leading men, leading men, that thing. Yeah. I, I'm fascinated by that, where it's not like you're playing a weird character. You, you're just sort of... The, the idea of... I'm, there's a wonderful actor named Matt Jones, who was on Breaking Bad. He played Badger. Right, yeah. And we're friendly. We see each other around in L.A. Yeah, he's uh, great. Just talking... We talk a lot about acting when we're together, because we're both typed very differently. He's told me... He's, he's a big guy with this wonderful, scratchy voice, and he told Yeah, he's often typed as, like, dumb guys. Yeah. You know? And I'm often typed as, like... <laughs> evil scientists. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You've had a run of evil because, scientists on yeah, podcast yeah, exactly. TV. And, and we were talking about this and he told me, it's funny, we both were recently cast as boyfriends. I'm, my old friend Julie Klasner 
is doing a sitcom for Hulu in New York, and I just wrapped the first season of that. Cool. And she plays, I'm basically her Cheryl David, a la Curb Your Enthusiasm. She plays a kind of unfiltered, crazy lady in New York, <laughs> and, and I play her sort of very patient, still quirky, but understanding boyfriend, and right. that's a role I never get cast as. I only get cast in this because she's an old friend of mine, and she knew it would be funny if I was like the normal guy. <laughs> I'm essentially her straight man. And Matt Jones was telling me that he recently played, like, a nice boyfriend in something, and he'd never done it before in make-believe. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you a, uh, a couple of leading man-related questions. Yeah, please. Uh, this is a little bit of a weird question. If a bunch of leading man, leading women actors played football against a bunch of character actors, <laughs> who do you think would win the football game? Well, uh... Here you now. Let, let's say you got Cary Grant out there, okay, in the leading man. Yeah, but he was a uh, an acrobat when he started out, so he's probably really good physically. Yeah, but then if you got like Brian Dennehy on the other team, <laughs> he, he looks like a, he's built like a football player. <laughs> yes, he is, and he may not have acrobatic skills. <laughs> But I bet he's fleet of foot and he's a big motherfucker. <laughs> I mean, you know, Phil Hoffman was a wrestler in high yeah. school. Uh, I would uh, not be on either team because I'm frightened to death of the idea of football. <laughs> I, I've never been. Yes. Tackled. I'm afraid I'm going to injure myself by watching I, and, football. No, so. I can't, I'm, I'm not into football partially because I was never because I was always a skinny little twerp in school and I just didn't like sports. Yeah. So I never follow any sports. I would be on the sidelines. And would you cheer uh, for the character actors? I could be the mascot. I'd dress up like a bat or whatever the hell you do. I like the idea of you being the mascot. <laughs> now I'm picturing this giant Paul Lynn costume you're dressed up in as the mascot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a giant Paul Lynn head. Cool. Well, I was interested to see what sort of stereotypes I might emerge. It could go either way. That's yeah, what I would say. I think that's great. Also, I like movie stars and I like movie star acting as a thing. Like, I, uh, you know, everyone likes to make fun of, like, Keanu Reeves because he's not, he's not taken to be a great actor. Right. And for some reason, even though the man is my age, he's, like, in 50 or 51. Yeah. People still, when they imitate him, they do, like, Ted or whatever, you know. Yeah, Bill from, and like, Ted. 20 years ago. <laughs> and, and that's longer. horrible to think of. 30. Yeah. And, and it's like, and I've... Um, yeah, and, and like he's kind of in a, a, a classic tradition of, seriously, he's basically like our Gregory Peck. Because this gets into another thing. Gregory Peck was our super good looking guy who played, was most famous for playing this sort of stately character, you know, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. You know. Very well, proper Scott, man. Sometimes yeah. people hate each other. And <laughs> he, he, he does a thing which I call the beautiful speaking. Yeah. He does that. He's got this beautiful voice, and he speaks in this very measured way. And if he gets upset about something, we'll see it in his face. He rarely even raises his voice. And it's <laughs> as, he's acting within very limited yeah. parameters. But it's good and it's compelling. And Keanu Reeves speaks in this sort of very measured voice. In speed, like, take my hand, you know. Yeah. He plays, he tends to play sort of good men. Yeah. These, even the hitman, that dumb movie he just made. John Wick? Yeah, where he's like a hitman. He's still like, he's a good hitman. Right? <laughs> he's a great yeah. hitman. He's a good man who yeah. suffered. And, he's, and he actually has this lovely voice. He's, I'm not doing him now, but 
he does like there's a little bit of dude i yeah. guess but not that much but it's like dude mixed with the acting you were talking about early on with the it's, the low deep intense yeah, kind quiet of, he speaks well and he looks beautiful yeah and we relate to him quietly dealing with things on screen yeah he's great in john wick and that's exactly what gregory peck did you know but like, because Gregory Peck didn't play like teenage stoners when he was young. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, Gregory Peck's going to be in. Oh, my God. Did you hear they're making a movie of To Kill a Mockingbird and Gregory Peck is playing him? Yeah. The guy who played that stoner kid 30 years ago? Yeah. The, the guy from Tom and oh, Dandy get a whoa, lot of scout. Because <laughs> he says, whoa, in The Matrix. Like, that's one line. Yeah. He didn't even write it. No. He's like, whoa. And that was, <laughs> I think, a callback. And that was a good line. It is a great honest emotional the, reaction yeah. whoa and that was underplayed that was underplayed yeah. it wasn't like my name is neo i love that the way he delivers that line is amazing remind me uh because it could be and i think by many actors would be shouted it's when he finally starts to get his right. power in the subway and fights back uh and he just it's more about the cadence of my name is Neo. And he yeah. does pop the end of it a little bit. But, yeah. you know, I think like a I've, Christian Bale would say, like, my name is Neo! Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I've always enjoyed him. And another guy I've always enjoyed is Brad Pitt. Like, you know, and like Brad Pitt is very much, you know, a leading man tradition where whatever, they go lists of great actors, they'll put like Phil Hoffman or deservedly so. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily put Brad Pitt or Keanu on those lists. Yeah. But I genuinely like those guys and I like that kind of I, I honestly don't mean this sarcastically. I like like movie star acting. Yeah, like where it's it's just a different kind of. There are different expectations. They're asked to do different things. Yeah, uh, I think some of the characters filled in by our relationship with them by their sort of just presence. Even when they're doing a good job acting, there's a little bit of that sort of starting point that you really have a relationship with them. Yes. That can be subverted or played into. Or you come in going, I like this guy. Yeah. Let's see this new Brad Pitt film. We, I like that Brad Pitt. <laughs> let's, let's see what he's, he's scrapes he's going to get into this time. <laughs> oh, is it zombies this time? That's true. That's All right. a big thing that you bring in with actors that are known. That's why... Movies are still driven. Yeah. Independent films are still driven by stars. Like, because people come in like, I want to see so-and-so do a thing. I like that person. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so, uh, so speaking of movie star acting, uh, do you yes. think at this point acting schools should teach more practical skills like, you know, getting shot and <laughs> running away from explosions and all of the things that... Hey, one very important thing is like, uh, use your props. Yeah, know, you know how to pick something up. That's oh, hard. yeah. And have a natural relationship with something yeah, instead have of being a like, performative about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, it's very common. Uh, actors are really taken care of on sets. Uh, they're called the talent. They call you to set. On some sets, the PA will come up to you, to your trailer and say, you're invited to set. <laughs> wow. And you're like, oh, I am. Whoa, how wonderful. <laughs> well, let so me get back to you. Well, yes, let I me get back to you. Answer maybe on yeah, Facebook. exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there's all this language, uh, there's all this protective language right. around actors, which is kind of silly, you know. Uh, but it gets to the point where they also want you to be physically comfortable. And, of course, th there are safety issues. Yeah. Uh, but, like, if there's a scene... Sarah and I were just watching some movie, and I forget what it was, but a character is using a, like a small sledgehammer. Okay. To hammer like a yard sign. And it was clearly, you're just catching up at the last two knocks. <laughs> yeah. And it was clearly a light, like a, a fake one. Yes. With a, not heavy. Yeah. Not with the heft of an actual. 
hammer. And, and you could tell by the way it hit the wood that it wasn't, it didn't have the weight. And I feel like you sh the guy should have got, just bring me a real one, it's fine. Right, so like... Because it'll look real. And I don't, I can lift, I can lift this for several takes, it's fine. It's yeah. Like, and this has happened to me, like I've been on sets where I was in a, uh, uh, I, I've been in things where like I, I had to lift something and it was, and it was just like, it had paper in it or something, right. a box or something. And it's like, you can tell when it's, it's better if it's a real thing. Right. That's something I would talk about is just that aspect of <laughs> just, if they give you a box and it's supposed to have books in it, don't just have newspaper in it. Right. Yeah, it doesn't have to be it. full of books. Yeah. I don't want you to strain your back, but have enough that there's a little, it takes a little effort. Yeah. I think there's a plague of coffee cups on like uh, mostly serial TV shows. Mm -hmm. That and I've heard a lot of people complain about this that they're they're empty they're clearly empty right and some actors are good at giving them weight but a lot of people are like oh it's a rough morning here's your hot cup of coffee yes. and then just the big yeah, light yeah. swig because there's nothing I know in it. it doesn't you should always if you can actually do the thing and here's the thing you can relate this to actual it is acting it, you should be actually doing there's a famous expression acting is real behavior in imaginary circumstances cool so if you should really do the thing. If it's like drinking a cup of coffee or lifting a box of books, it should have some, put some coffee and books in there. And then you don't have to act it. The thing is just, you're doing the thing and the camera's catching you doing a thing. Yeah. So, and if, so, and then it can get more you know, about acting that if we're having an argument, I shouldn't be acting the argument. I should be actually having an argument with you and the camera's catching it. We're saying words someone else wrote, but you know? Yeah. I think it relates. This but it is my acting real. school. It's prop driven. Excellent. I, that, <laughs> that was the that was the last question. The acting portion of our podcast. I was going to ask you about. Yes. Uh, Uda Hagen has her nine rules. Uh, what are James Urbaniak's rules of acting? Oh no, I don't. I of course I know who Uda Hagen is. She uh, she had a book that, which we read when I was young called Respect for Acting. Yes. Which on the cover she's gesturing. She's actually <laughs> doing something, which is a, kind of a red flag. Yeah. <laughs> She's doing like uh, I'm. I'm doing a gesture, but I'll act it on the cover. She's kind of doing like a small gesture, then her hands like on her face. <laughs> then she's doing a wide, encompassing gesture. Yeah. And my friend Michael Gans, who's now a TV producer in LA, at the time we were acting students at school, and he used to say of the cover of that book, "I'll have." A six-inch hoagie. No. A 12-inch hoagie. <laughs> so he memed it, it before her, the yeah, internet. It was her ordering a sandwich. Nice. That was okay. his, his yeah. shit. Her nine questions are just like super basic acting thing. Like, who am I? What are my relationships? How right. am I feeling? Is it a Tuesday? Like, that obviously not a real one, but, you know. Right. I, well, I never thought of a list, so I'm coming up with one on the spot. So right now, put, put coffee and books in the things. Put stuff in your things. Put stuff in your things. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can only do what works for me. The list would just be yeah. what works for me. Oh, so sure. like, yeah. like, Give me uh, three or four that oh, work for you. Uh, uh, know the lines backwards and forwards. Know the lines backwards and forwards. Because that's the least important part. That's just a technical necessity that should be gotten out of the way. Right. So you don't have to worry about the lines. You know, really know them. Uh, work it out at home. And then, but related to the next number, what are we up to now? Four, uh, five? Yeah, no, we're, you're up to three. Work it uh, out at work home. Work it out at home, ellipses. <laughs> Four, ellipses. And be open to what's happening on the set. Okay, so work it out at home, but throw it away on set if need be. Well, just like at home, think about all your beats and what you're doing and why you're doing it. 
Uh, but then don't be married to the decisions you've made because the environment that you're actually shooting in can create new ideas. So you should come in with a foundation. Nice. So number five is like, in other words, come in with a foundation, <laughs> but, build, but you actually build on the set. How's awesome. that? That's great. That's pretty good. I right? think that's really clear, yeah. <laughs> Put uh, then, put stuff in things. Yes, uh, I don't know. Learn the crew's names. Okay. Be nice to the. Crew. I think that's a great one. Learn the crew's names. Know who's at Crafty. So you can say, "Hey, Bob, <laughs> where's that pepper? Can we ain't got any more pepperoni?" Well, yeah, because you can do a better job <laughs> when everyone around you is comfortable. I did. I uh, worked with the great Brenda Vaccaro. You know Brenda Vaccaro. Mm-hmm. She was a Brenda Vaccaro was a great. Uh, uh, she was kind of an interesting leading lady in like the '60s. And now she's kind of a busy character actress now that she's older. Mm-hmm. And she has a classic. A lot of actresses of a certain generation have a raspy voice. Yeah. They, Kathleen Turner was sort of the last of that. It's just a thing where they sort of speak like this. Yeah. It comes out of here. And I think it's something that developed over years. But it's what they do. Yeah. You know, and there's famous actress of that, of an earlier generation, Elizabeth Ashley, very famous. She also has a little sibling, which is another <laughs> thing that there's a certain actresses, they have a raspy voice and a little bit of sibling, like just a little bit of a speech imperfection that makes it sexier. Right, makes it's it like, unique like and Marilyn's, human. like Marilyn's uh, uh, mole. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's like it just makes it a little, the, the imperfection beauty mole in your mouth. Yeah. to the, you know. yeah. The exception proves the rule or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, 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 well, where was I going with that? So, um, I worked with Brenda Vaccaro. So, she's a very experienced actress. She's been in the business since the 40s or whatever, wow. right? The 50s yeah. or something as a young actress. And and she was, she would come in and like the focus puller would be there. She said, Dave, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. How are you, Brenda? You know. Nice. Uh, and then I she would go great. to craft services. She'd be yeah. like, Lucille, what do you got for me today? You know, she yeah. knew everyone's name. And I'm like, what a fucking pro. And she probably <laughs> went home and looked at the call sheet because everyone's name is on the sheet. And she yeah. was like, all right, so Susie works in craft. Yeah. Like, because you, it's hard. You're there, you're meeting people, but, you know, it's hard to memorize this. And I really admired that. And I'm like, that is fucking beautiful. She awesome. just knows the crew's name because it's so easy not to know everyone's name. Uh, film says there's a million people yeah. with all different jobs. And it just kind of creates a nice, it's nice to have a good rapport with yeah, I would imagine the people it you're lets working you be with more aren't just the director and actor. It's all these other people who have jobs. Yeah. And it's just fun. I love that environment. I love sets. And uh, so that, so yeah. And then uh, where are we? Nine? I don't know. No, yeah, you don't have to go all the way to nine. <laughs> this one goes to nine. <laughs> this one yeah, goes to nine. Be, be, look, here it is, Joseph. Learn your lines and be nice. Learn your lines, okay? be nice. And, and yeah. put coffee in the thing. <laughs> put coffee and don't in pretend the to drink coffee. <laughs> but, oh, so, but this reminds me of another one of my favorite things about acting, which is sort of about, like, just drink the coffee. Yeah. One of my all-time favorite things I've ever heard about acting is also one of my all-time favorite actors, Jimmy Stewart, who is a leading man who can act his ass off. Yes. And uh, is fantastic. And yes. Also, he, in his, in his way, he's so iconic, but he is as spontaneous and sort of emotionally uh, resonant as yeah. fucking Marlon Brando or any of those guys, just because he has a different style. And his plays characters who have a different style. 
but he, there's an interview I read with him, and he says this great thing. He's talking about acting that gets noticed. Mm-hmm. And so he's talking about like acting that wins awards, which, as we know, to this day, if the nominees include a character who got cancer and a character who went on a trip, the actor who got <laughs> cancer in the movie is yeah. going to win. Like we, yeah. that's just that's right. Just, yeah, the more you suffer, the more awards you. Get. Right, you need the people need to see the flashy acting or so what you think is flashy. in the in this interview. James Stewart is referring to. Uh, the movie from the 50s called The Man with the Golden Arm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know that movie, movie well. where Sinatra, yeah. uh, who was a pretty good actor yes. when he wanted to be. In this film, he's great. Uh, plays a heroin addict. And it's like an it's a auto premature made. It's a yeah. movie about a junkie in the yeah. 50s. It's and he's a drummer, too. Yeah. Interesting topic. So he doesn't mention Sinatra. He doesn't say anything negative about Sinatra. He doesn't mention the movie, but he alludes to it. And he says, well, you know... We can go to the movies and see someone going through heroin withdrawal. And most of us, the bulk of the audience has never experienced that. Right. So for all we know, the actor could stand on his head. And for all we know, that is an accurate <laughs> portrayal of heroin withdrawal. Oh, right. Right? Yeah. But he said, but if someone walks on screen and says to their secretary, did I get any messages? Well, we all know what that is. I'm paraphrasing, but this is what yeah. he said. We all know what that is. And if that doesn't ring true, everyone's going to recognize it. And what he was talking about, the importance of mundane moments. Right. Which every performance is is made up of. And for me, I just, I love that so much. And whenever I have a scene that's very simple, uh, uh, part of the story, but not much seems to be happening in the scene. I always think this is a did I get any messages scene. Oh, nice. And, and this has to be played as real and spontaneously as the scene where I'm going through heroin withdrawal, you know. Awesome. That And so that for me, that's a big mantra for me. It's like, it's a, it's a did I get any messages scene. And, and that has to be really as well acted. And when I see someone on TV or even a film who just has a tiny moment that's very real, that's hard to do. That's that's really as hard to do as you could argue that the big moments. His, uh, you know, help me. Just you know, <laughs> yeah. but we are easier somehow, you know. But to be really so, some of my favorite actors are also people who like supporting actors who just is a great actress in the fifties named Thelma Ritter. She's like in Rear Window. He's like she's like Jimmy Stewart's maid or whatever, okay. you know. And she kind of has a kind of East Coast accent, and she, you know, but she's always really good. She, her characters never go through big emotions. They're always just there to help out the other characters, yeah. kind of chime in. But everything she says seems real. She never has a false moment. She's a great actor, but she's not put on the great acting list because she's. Plays maids who right. come in and help out. Because she never went through heroin withdrawal. Yeah, she never goes through it. She's like the nurse at the hospital who's nice to the guy. <laughs> but you believe everything she says and everything she does. And that is the kind of acting that gets me really excited. Are, are sort of, you know, actors who just have to sort of execute mundane actions and behavior. Yeah. But they're so real that I get any messages, you know. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah, I, love I, the, love I love the I love the get a message moment. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so I'm going to ask you how obsessed you are. I ask all my guests uh, to kind of determine across the, all of the podcast episodes of Obsessed how obsessed different people are. Do you think about actors every day? Wow. Uh, probably, yeah. I never even thought about it, but 
I probably do to some degree. And of course, we're always probably most people see a little bit of acting every day. Yeah, it's hard people not to at this TV point. watch TV or shows, yeah. at least a snippet of something. Or even a Vine video at this point. A Vine of, video, yeah. yeah. So I probably I probably do, yeah. Cool. <laughs> Would you wear underwear with your favorite actor's face on them? No. <laughs> no. Would, would that feel I, disrespectful to, like, I, I, Jimmy Stewart, to have Jimmy Stewart underwear? Yes, yes. Although, uh... Yeah, Brian Dennehy underwear would probably be kind of jolly. <laughs> so if it was appropriate to the person. Not that Brian Dennehy has any association with underwear or my <laughs> underwear area. But I just, seeing that smiling mug in the morning when you're yeah. pulling out a fresh pear. I'd be like, let's start the day with a lot of pep. Let's start by the putting day. Brian Dennehy's face on my crotch. <laughs> awesome. Uh, would you swear at a nun over an actor-related disagreement? Uh, I, well, I do follow a nun on Twitter, Sister Helena uh, Burns. I don't think I'd swear to her over an actor, but I once, um, a couple years ago, there was a right-wing, uh, oh, one of the more outspoken right-wing Catholics, uh, was complaining about, uh, CeeLo's, uh, fuck you. Okay. And look, whatever you think about CeeLo or things that have happened in recent history, that's a great song. Yeah. And that's a charming song. Yeah. And I remember actually saying, I, I quoted this guy. He, this right-wing crank, was talking about how this is indicative of the death of culture and, oh, you know, uh, civilization. Yeah. And I was like, oh, please. Uh, that, I bet that song would even put a smile on a nun's face. Am I right, Sister Helena Burns? And she wrote back saying, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, no, it's a good song. Indeed. She Fuck backed you. me up. Okay, good. Nice. All right. So James Urbaniak has the nuns on his side. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, would you do a community theater show with Adolf Hitler? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Now, this is an alternative universe where Hitler... He's he's still a painter, and now he's auditioning yeah. for community theater. I mean, you can yeah, you can uh, create the situation in which this happens Look, in any way you'd like. Joseph, every actor has worked with a Hitler. <laughs> I've worked with Hitlers, quote unquote. Do you mean people who behave poorly on set, <laughs> or do you just mean Hitler is such a prevalent character in our culture? Oh. I, yes, I mean little Hitler's sense. <laughs> Although the, the playing of Hitler is a whole cottage industry. Yeah. There have been many... Uh, Bruno Gans is a great Hitler, but he was he was reduced to a meme. Yeah. Because that movie... The, the, yeah, the, the Hitler is upset about blank meme? Yes, yes. Alec Ennis played Hitler. Did he really? Yeah. He, he was a TV movie. That's actually the same topic as Downfall. It's about like the last few weeks in the bunker. Wow. And uh, a lot of guys have played Hitler. But you wouldn't want to interact with Hitler himself. I don't think uh, he would be a very open actor. <laughs> I don't think, I think he'd, he'd be very good. Yeah, I think as an actor, he'd probably be selfish. Yeah. Uh, a lot of arm gestures, for sure. Yeah, oh, a lot of gestures. <laughs> he, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that kind of loud barking acting style. Yeah, always be in the front of the stage. He'd never always, underplay. Yep. Yes. He'd upstage you, literally. Uh, he'd bring in a good DP if he was making a movie, though. <laughs> yeah, I tell you absolutely. That yeah. <laughs> All of those nice shots looking up to make yeah. you tall and important. Uh, would you write slash fiction about your favorite actors? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, I would leave that to other people. So would you read it? I would, maybe I would accidentally stumble upon it if uh, <laughs> when Charles Lawton met Brian Dennehy. <laughs> after a sweaty game of football. <laughs> and they were wearing underwear with one another's faces on them. Uh, 
Okay, so this is the last uh, of the How Obsessed Are You questions. Yes. In the most metaphysical, if you couldn't watch your favorite actor's work without first being punched in the groin, would you still do it? Ah. Oh, my goodness. Did Sarah answer this question? Uh, yes. Ray Beer? Yes. I, uh... Yeah, it would probably have to be special occasions, though. It would be like, well, it's been a year. I haven't checked in with a lot in performance. <laughs> All right. And I'd go to the closet and the geek would come out with his boxing glove <laughs> off. Like, All right, go ahead. <laughs> All right, now I can watch. About some Wimple Street. <laughs> yeah, I check in. I love that. I've, I've pictured this differently as I've asked guests because uh, they normally want to barter with this yes. on a metaphysical level of what what the creature or circumstance is. But I like that there is a creature in the closet. There's a guy. There's yeah, a gnome or uh, uh, someone who's in the closet. <laughs> the groin punching. They're giving me a yeah. robot. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. A replicant, perhaps. <laughs> Uh, who are not robots. No. They, you they're, would know this. It's yes. Important. They're, yes. They're androids. Yes. yes. I just saw Blade Runner at yes, the dome. All, it was, yeah. Uh, I know that Sci-Fi Geeks has very a big issue. It's like, yes. Yes. They're real people, the replicants. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, because it's necessary for me to check in with my favorite performances, which I do on a regular basis. Right. So it's important enough to you that you would go through some amount of physical pain in order to keep this in your life. Yeah, because it's part of... It, yeah, it's essential. But I, I would do it less because I wouldn't necessarily want to be hit. Yeah. Because I, you know, I'd be like, well, you know, there was a time when Charles Lawton couldn't just watch a video of his favorite actor. Yeah. He just had his memories. <laughs> and he'd go to the theater or movies and they'd be like, they're like, well, people live without that for a long time. Yeah. So I can find it. This is what Justice Scrimshaw has deemed for me. <laughs> then... I'll deal with an occasional hit to the balls as long as I can check in with. Yes. Yeah. And I, out I, comes I, the great gnome. performance. Uh, <laughs> I ask people gnome. to make a noise to sum up their obsession. Uh, sometimes it's more difficult with acting. Mm. I think you have a plethora of noises to choose from. Yes. Uh, so what noise sums up your obsession with actors? Uh, probably something like, uh, which is, <laughs> and it, which is my highest praise, which is, Amazement, uh -huh. admiration, and exasperation. Because my favorite performances, I love them so much that they annoy me. Because I consider myself pretty sophisticated about acting. Yeah. And my favorite ones are like, how the fuck did they do that? How did they do that? that how did they pull that moment off? Fuck. <laughs> so it's like, ah, that's so good. You asshole <laughs> how come you're better than me how okay. come i don't know how you did that is it that's that, that's the noise <laughs> that's a great noise i'm not gonna ask more questions because that was that was a great noise so you brilliant asshole <laughs> do, I, do you actually shout you brilliant asshole yes, you okay. brilliant asshole i'm gonna do that Fuck uh, you, yeah. you, genius, yeah. who I love. I'm going to see Avengers Age of Ultron quite soon, and uh, I will be shouting out, you brilliant asshole. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, here are the final questions. I ask just some oddball final questions. They don't necessarily have to do with your obsession, but they can if you want. Yes. If you could talk to any inanimate object, what <laughs> object would you want to talk to? Oh, this is just, right, this is not necessarily on the theme yeah, earlier. Yeah, just, just, they started out as sort of inside the actor's studio's questions, and then they just went nuts. Right. I uh, lava lamp, I guess. <laughs> what would you say to a lava lamp? In the like? same way that I enjoy talking to sort of baby boomers of the 60s generation. 
you know, respect your yeah, so yeah. someone who's sort of of another time and is now not quite of our time and did you know? Did you always think you were cool? Now, you know, someone as lava lamp. It's like, oh, they bought it at Goodwill because it was funny. Yeah, because right? it's yeah, ironic. Yeah, yeah, it's ironic. So but you'd like, like to have a sincere conversation yeah. with the lava lamp about its memories. Yeah, it's like, and who? Yeah, it's journey. Like it, some young hippie people bought it from the store in L.A. in 1970, and yeah. now it's. Now it's at some hipster's apartment in Los Feliz. <laughs> yeah, what has it seen? What has it heard? What has yeah. it felt? <laughs> That's Should right. expect to make a comeback. Yeah, and it's uh, that whole, they're cool to look at. Yeah, absolutely. You wouldn't get bored. Uh, okay, so next question. <laughs> <laughs> if the U.S. government made a stamp of you, what would you be doing on the stamp? Oh, finger gun. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> no, a total like, hey. hey postage yeah. is still alive. Hello. Like, has anyone else ever done the finger gun on a stamp? No, I don't think so. No. Well, that's great. Now I really want a stamp with James Urbanic. <laughs> it would probably be a three cent. But they need the, the three cents when they change the uh, best line in uh, Fargo. Absolutely. Well, they need the two cent ones when, that, when the cost goes up. Uh, the final question for everyone on the podcast is, what is happiness? <laughs> happiness is a film by Todd Solons that Phil Hoffman is in, which I auditioned for. And uh, I didn't get the part, and Phil Hoffman got it. And uh, thus, two roads diverged in the, in the yellow wood of, uh, act, of the acting world. And Thank you. Uh, did, did Phil Hoffman's performance? I, I read to play the phone masturbator. Guy. Oh, wow. He deserved it. He was awesome. He was great. And did his performance make you make your, your acting sound? Your sound uh, of... A little bit in that one. That actually happened. That did happen in a uh, uh, prior to that. Um, this is the thing I wrote about when he died. Very quickly, I'll just tell you that in New York many years ago, I auditioned when Phil Hoffman was sort of starting out. Mm-hmm. I auditioned to be in a one act play in an evening of one act plays, uh, and he got the part. And <laughs> the part was actually like a, a, a gnome who lived in a closet. It was like a weird. <laughs> Play was a little take on Cyrano. Okay. And it was a humorous play where a novelist had a ghost writer, but his ghost writer was described in the script as like a um, like a, a, a deformed uh, dwarf or something. Okay. It was like a kind of a, a, a supernatural creature. Like a little creature, yeah. Yeah. And so it was all very light, but when uh, I played the part and I came out and was kind of wry and... I, I mean, I auditioned for the part and I, I was sort of doing a very James Urbani. I kind of, hi there, I'm here to write the thing. You know, and I live in the closet. And I'm a smart little smartass. <laughs> and Phil Hoffman came out and opened the... I, he, I didn't get the part. I went to see the play and it was Phil Hoffman and he came out dragging himself across the stage. That was his entrance. The closet door opens and like his legs didn't work right. Wow. And just that moment alone of, you can imagine uh, Phil Hoffman making the choice, I'm going to pull that big body, pulling himself across the stage. Yeah. And you could actually argue that it was actually not the right choice for the play. That, like my performance would have worked on its own terms. Yeah. But he came in and it was the play is like, it's a light little play. It starts with the writer talking to his agent, who he's flirting with. It's a woman. And, and then we see he's got a ghostwriter. And suddenly this man drags himself <laughs> across the stage and is talking in this kind of pain voice. you know. And obviously Phil Hoffman was like, okay, it's a deformed no. <laughs> so, so how would he travel? How yeah. would he move? And what's that like to live in a closet? All, like he brought a heaviness to it. Yeah. That again, maybe wasn't the right thing 
but it was mind-blowing because it was like, wow, you can really go deeper. This guy went much deeper than I would even have occurred to me to yeah. go. And that was my first really big, oh, moment <laughs> with that actor. Seeing him on stage doing that, which he continued to do his whole career. God bless him. Yeah. He really, like, he really kept going deeper and... And that's, that's would be the, ah, there you go. That's the last number, number 10 on the list is <laughs> dig deeper. No matter, if you think you've got it, just think further, push it farther. How much further can you go with it? You know, raise the stakes. How much higher can the stakes be? Right. Uh, that's it. There you go. Dig deeper, baby. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. On Dig Deeper, that is our podcast. <laughs> You've been listening to Obsessed. Joseph Scrimshaw and his guest shared some stories with the rest. Rate five stars if you're impressed. Obsessed.